So with your Bible in front of you, um, I want to just give you right off the top the main idea of the passage, uh, verses 4 through 6, chapter 13, 4 through 6. The main idea of the passage before you is simply simply this, that believers, Christians, you, you're to hold marriage in high honor, and you, me, we're to guard guard your hearts from the love of money. So believers are to hold marriage in high honor and to guard their hearts from the love of money. Uh, John Owen, a famous preacher, said these words years ago, hey, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It has also been said that it's just a matter of time before our private sin, those things we think that are in secret, our private sin will soon become public. The writer to the Hebrews said something that's very profound, and it sets up our text on this Lord's Day. He said it way back in Hebrews 2, 1, and he said this, we must pay closer attention. Let me just pause there for a moment. We, as God's people, the church, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. Lest we drift from it. You see, as we've learned going through the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is certainly greater than, greater than everything. He's better than. But we also know this, that drifting, when a believer drifts, it's dangerous. Only in the movies can we drift someplace and end up someplace good. That only happens in the movies. You see, when a boat is unmanned, or when a boat is just drifting, and it's going out to sea after a storm, typically what happens to that boat is that boat is destroyed. The writer to the Hebrews has locked into something, even in this practical text. He's locked into something, knowing that nothing will sink your life. Go with the boat, the boat metaphor. Nothing will sink your life. Nothing will sink the church faster than moral wavering in respect to sex and materialism. Nothing will sink the ship faster than those two things. The practical and intimate advice that we see in chapter 13 is how it is that believers, Christians, can keep, the, their, can keep their ship afloat, can keep the ship afloat. You see, if we ignore the counsel or ignore God's word, we are going to sink. Sometimes we think the word is for somebody else because we're thinking about egregious sins, maybe, maybe those that we're not struggling with. So our minds are tempted to think about someone else because it would be natural to do that because we're thinking about those who, who, might, who might be in that pain at the moment. But I would ask us all to consider that perhaps we need to be thinking that this could be us as well. That we too have the potential to drift and go someplace that we're not supposed to go. Hebrews 13.4 says this, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. That's what God's Word says. Let marriage be held in honor among all. That is what we've been told to do. That is the command that we've been given, that we would take marriage and that we would hold it in honor. The word honor here means precious, that we're to see marriage as something precious. The world, it makes mockery out of marriage. But God says 
marriage is precious to me. The people who belong to God, Christians, are to be seen as a people who do value marriage. That we are to be those who defend marriage. That is something to get worked up about. Marriage is something that we need to defend and even do so on social media. But you never thought I'd say that. This is important. This is a deal breaker. We defend it everywhere that we can. We do it in a way that's gracious and honoring to the Lord and to the community and to the saints, but we are to hold it in high regard. The people who belong to God understand that marriage is precious to God. We defend it. We honor it. God looks at marriage as an honorable institution. Here's why. Because He designed it. It's His plan. He's the designer of marriage. Yet the world that we live in is sin-sick. And it does not, and it never will, honor biblical marriage. It just ain't going to happen. But we're still to defend it and hold it up because Jesus does. I like what John Piper said. He said this. He said, marriage is created and defined by God in the Bible as the sexual and covenantal union of a man and a woman in lifelong allegiance to each other alone as husband and wife with a view to displaying Christ's covenant relationship to His blood-bought church. So he's laying out a definition for what marriage is, what it's to do, and how it, how it exalts the Savior and how it helps us to become more like the Father. This is seen most clearly in Scripture, specifically in the book of Genesis. And I'd like to read to you Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2. But let me look at Genesis 1, 27 through 28. Again, as we talk about this is God's design. Marriage is God's design. He says this in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man. In his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the flesh, over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. And then God's word says in Genesis 2, 23 through 24, it says this. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one What this is saying is God, God through the scriptures, God is speaking to us. God created man, he created man, he created male and female so that there might be one flesh, sexual union and covenantal cleaving with this in view, that we would multiply and subdue the earth. That was one of the reasons for marriage. It also displays God's covenant with his people. And eventually, Christ's covenant with his church. So again, 13.4 in Hebrews says this, 
let marriage be held in honor amongst all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled. Undefiled. That word undefiled in the text here means unstained by sin or, and free from moral impurity. So the Word of God is saying, listen, Christians, grab this. Let marriage be held in high honor amongst all, okay? And let the marriage bed be undefiled. The word bed here in this context, let me read it to you. Let the, let the marriage be held in honor amongst all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. The word bed is used here as a euphemism for sexual intercourse. That's what this means. Kent Hughes said this, and I quote, The bed, the sexual relationship, is an altar, so to speak, where a pure offering of a couple's lives is made to each other and God. So it's meant to be pure and not undefiled, right? That, that's what God's design is. There's no room in the marriage bed for anyone else besides our spouse. And many of us would say yes and amen to that. But some of this practicality is being shared because not everybody gets that, or not everybody knew that, or perhaps some were sinning and not adhering to God's Word. That's why it's here. The Christian is called to be pure. The Christian is called to be pure. This is not something to mess around with because the last part of this verse concludes with something significant. It's like a stick of dynamite. Let's read it. Again, the end of verse 4. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will, here it is, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So God is going to judge those who are in violation of what He deems pure, or what is right in His eyes according to Scripture. This word translated immoral in the text means those who commit fornication. Okay? That's what it means here. It's in distinction to adultery. There's, these are two different things. They're both sexual sin, but they're two different things. The writer is simply saying this in the text. That there are two ways, there are many ways, but here's a couple of ways to dishonor marriage and the defiling of the marriage bed. And again, those words are Adultery and fornication. Adultery is having sexual relationship or intercourse with someone who is not your spouse. Okay? It's the assumption here that you're married and now you're going outside of the marriage bed. That's adultery. Fornication would be sex before marriage. God is saying that's not my design, is the point. See, both of those dishonor marriage. Both dishonor God because it takes what God calls precious, it, it takes what God calls pure, and it distorts it and it stains. That's why God says, have nothing to do with it. So what is God's response to this sort of sin? Well, we've read part of that, that He will judge the sexually immoral, He will judge the sexually immoral and the adulteress. But it also says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, the following. So how will he deal with those who are a violation of these such things? Again, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is not my opinion. This is what the Word of God says. And we need to stand on God's Word. So let this be the point of this section, at least. Man may do his best to try to revise everything the Word of God says. Man will do his best to redefine marriage, redefine pronouns, or even invent new ways to satisfy and gratify one's sexual self. We know that's what the world does, and we expect that of the world. Don't tell me you're surprised by anything anymore. You can't be. I mean, it used to be we were like, no, that one surprised me. Now we say, yeah, nothing surprises me anymore. You're like, nothing. Nothing. However, know this. Again, God's word is terrifyingly clear. He will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous if the adulterers, if they are unrepentant. If they are unrepentant. Revelation 21.8, again, as I drill home this point and the seriousness of it, says this, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So we see that this is deadly serious. And it's meant to be. And it's meant, even though it's a practical teaching. Um, you know, we're moving from doctrine to duty. It's practical, but it's still heavy. It's an intimate conversation that he's having with the church. I like this quote by Freddie Gage. It says this, Hey, sin, it thrills, and then it kills. It fascinates, and then it assassinates. If you play, you are going to pay. Many of you bear witness to someone who's destroyed their life because they've played. Again, R. Kent Hughes said, when I was looking at his commentary, he says, you know, many ask, <laughs> what does this passage of Scripture have to do with the survival of the church? He said this, I thought it was interesting. He said, yeah, like everything, everything. As I can think of no more efficient way to sink a ship than that which happens through adultery and sexual immorality. Immorality perverts theology. Immorality perverts theology. How true it is indeed. Edwin Lutzer said that no matter how many pleasures Satan offers you, his ultimate intention is to run you, is to ruin you. Satan's ultimate intention is to ruin you. Your destruction is his highest priority. We do know that we have a real enemy. John 10.10 says the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That he's always in the prowl looking for something to destroy. The question isn't, is he hunting? The question is, is he hunting you? 
This makes us easy prey as we drift into this lifestyle. Those that are strong, many who have, were pillars in the church, have found themselves drifting far away. Many returned, and some never did. It reminds me of a story of a, a police officer that I used to know. This police officer was uh, retired at this time, spent about 32 years on the force. Motorcycle cop most of those years. He was dear to me, and I would see him regularly. But I remember somewhere, I don't remember the exact dates, but I remember it was, I would say that my oldest kid at the time was probably eight. So I had young kids, <laughs> uh, obviously not married too long at that point. But he took a liking to me, and he pulled me aside one day, and he said to me, i got something I want to share with you. And this was a guy that I, I looked up to. And he said, I see you're a young guy. You've got a beautiful family, four kids. He said, um, you see, years ago, uh, I was at work, and I kind of caught eyes with a gal I worked with. I was married, and I knew it was wrong, but I just continued to have conversations with her. I got myself to a place where I believed it was innocent, and it just kept taking me a little further. Sound familiar? Drifting. He said, eventually I found myself way outside the safe zone. He said, I no longer thought about pleasing God, even though I was raised by godly parents and found myself at church every week. I was no longer about pleasing God. I could only think about pleasing myself. So I went for it. And as I did, I paid the highest cost. He said, I lost my marriage, but I lost even more than that. I didn't think that me drifting or me in this moment, I, I never thought that when it all started, it would take me here he said, but it did. I was wrong about the cost that I would have to pay. His point to me was, please do not do what I have done. And then he said to me, and this is the second time someone's told this to me in my life, and don't you dare say it cannot happen to you because that's what I used to say. Well, brothers and sisters, he went on to say, you know, Charlie, the funny thing about all this, he said, I had everything. I had a nice home, beautiful kids. He says, I wasn't arguing with my wife. I wasn't trying to get away from my wife. I actually adored my wife. She was good to me. She cared for me. Yet, for whatever reason, I was distracted and I was discontented. The Bible warns us, and by the way, that marriage did end in divorce. Did you know that seeing him even years later, he still told me, I'm still in love with my wife. She's remarried. If I could give anything 
to take back what I did, I would do it. But he made his peace with God, but he paid a significant price. The Bible warns you and I about not being content in him. The Bible warns us in chapter 13, verse 5, let's read it. It says, don't be discontented, right? Look at what it says. Keep your life, this is for all of us, keep your life free from love of money and be, con and, and be content with what you have. This is what Scripture says. You see, love of money and being content are frequently talked about in the New Testament. They're like twins. They seem to go together a lot. I'd like to read to you a few scriptures that drive home that point. The first one's going to be in Luke's gospel, and the other one's in Phil, the, the, and then the other one will be, um, where's that going to be? I don't think I wrote it down, but here it is. Luke 12, 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. In other words, don't covet. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, Luke 12, 15. So be on guard against being covetousness. Don't, don't be a, a one that covets. Be on guard. Be aware of it. And then Philippians 4, 11 says this. Not that I am speaking of being in need. This is Paul. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. The word that I want you to hear there is Paul said, I have learned to be content content. I have learned to be content. I've been through the wars. I understand what it's like to think that I don't have what I need. Oh, but God has trained me, and now I have learned what it means to be content. So if you find yourself on the other side of not being contented with what God has for you, know this, that if you're willing to go to God's school, He will train you as He did the Apostle Paul. Amen to that. So the people of God have already modeled this type of behavior to the Hebrew writer. And you may recall, you may recall that in Hebrews 10, 34. And they modeled this behavior, and now he's, he's asking them, I ask you to continue doing so. Remember 10, 34, I'll read it to you. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail and when all you and when all that you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. There were things that they had. Remember, these are new Christians, new church, new believers. And what happens is they face this persecution. And many of them had financial resource or property, things of value, things that are precious like silver and gold. Remember, silver and gold is considered what? Precious metals. And the Lord says marriage is precious. It's valuable. So he says, yes, you had things and it was taken from you, but you at this time in history accepted it with joy because you knew there were better things waiting for you that would last forever. And he's saying to us, you do likewise, Lakeshore City Church. You see, it's dangerous to not be 
content with what God has given you. It's a dangerous thing. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, to those who were discontented, he said, for those of you who are discontented, eager for money, you have drifted or wandered away from the faith and you've pierced yourself with many griefs. Like you've, you've wanted things outside of God's design and you've chased after those things. You were discontented with Christ because Christ was not greater than. He wasn't better than. And they went after it and ultimately it leads to destruction. How we live or what we live for is of great importance. That would be one of the things the writer would want to say, not just to this audience, but to all of us. How we live, how we respond to these things that hit us, knock us down, is of great importance. This, in the text, is a call to live out the Tenth Commandment, don't covet. The world not only encourages to keep what we have, the world encourages to go get more of whatever it is that we don't have. Jesus says, if we're in Christ, it ain't yours, it's mine. And we learned that last week. That's the design. So we know what the design is for marriage, but the design for financial resource or possessions or whatever it is, his design is he gives it to us on loan, remember? We're stewards of all that's entrusted to us. We know we can't take it with us. We are stewards, and we are to be people who steward wisely. You see, here's something very important. You see... Without being free from the love of money, there is no generosity. If we are not free from the love of money, there will be no generosity in your life. If you're not free from the love of money, you will be stingy. And as we've learned over and over again, there's no such thing as a Christian Scrooge. Here's a question. Do we control the money? Or does the money control us? Or your possessions, or whatever it would be. You and I are blessed so that we can be a blessing. If we are healthy, if, uh, you know, I, I, I know this, that when Melinda Carpenter walked in today, she ain't so healthy. She hobbled in here with a bad knee. She's probably not going to be the one that's going to plant your garden this week. But even if we have, we say, well, I don't have financial resource, Pastor, but maybe your health can be used to bless someone. Whatever it is that we have, it's been given to you. It's been, God's given it to you or to steward it so that you can bless others. You see, we would come to this summation that we are to handle our possessions loosely, not tightly. An unbeliever wants more and an unbeliever thinks they need more but the believer understands something. I mean, they really understand it. They don't just pretend like they understand. I mean, they really get this. They understand that their God has an unending supply of everything that they need. 
not want, they need. And I look at a group of people who I know God has come through again and again and again, and you believe that with your whole heart. You see, as God blesses this church, and however it is you want to define being blessed, it's not always financial, church, but that's certainly one way. But as God continues to bless this church, we have to think of it this way. Well, what is the mission of our church? Well, it's to love God, love people, and make disciples. So as God blesses us, we need to be about our Father's business. And as we take our resources, whatever they are, we drive it towards that mission. Well, what about our vision contextually? We, Lakeshore, in the next three years is going to be a growing, praying, equipping, and sending church. We take our resources to fulfill that vision. Those are some of the ways that we can take resources and be intentional. In other words, we're not just waiting for it to come in and go, I don't know what we're going to do with that. We're saying this is who we are. This is how we're going to make much of Jesus in our community. How we're going to make much of Jesus overseas. Or how we're going to get the gospel to all the nations. This is a part of our mission and vision. And so it should be with you. If it's on loan to you, you're always thinking about these types of things. Jen Wilkins said, when we believe in a vision, when we believe, a, when we believe in a vision of God, of God high and lifted up, when we fear the Lord with our finances, when we believe that He is in fact the origin of all things, it means that we regard our possessions differently than the unbeliever does. A scarcity mentality is to hold everything with a clenched fist, right? A tight grip. An abundance mentality is to hold everything loosely. And we're always asking, the believer's always asking and praying, Lord, you've entrusted this to me. What is it that I can do with this? How can I fulfill the Great Commission? How can I seek first the kingdom of God? And ultimately, how can I obey you God. With everything that we own, we obey, we hear, we respond, we as believers obey. Johnny Hunt said this, he said, obedience is the absolute key word for the Christian life, not victory. Some men tell me, I'm praying for victory over such and such of a stronghold. But you don't have to pray for victory. Pray instead that you will be obedient because victory is a byproduct of obedience. Victory comes when you obey God. Pray that God will help you to obey. And then you get the victory. I don't think it'd be wrong to say it the other way, but I get the point. I get the point. Again, 13.5, keep your life free from love of money. This is speaking to your pastor. This is speaking to Ron Gallerini. This is speaking to all of us. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? How precious is that? Very meaningful. To trust in money is to, trust, is to distrust God. Oh, how many times people have put their, their hope in money or property. 
only to see it fade away. So here's what money can and cannot do. A couple of things. Money is a passport to about everywhere but heaven. Money will get you a lot of things. It could take you to a lot of places. It could get you to Aruba. Maybe not now. But it can get you to a lot of places, right? But it can't get you to heaven. Money can buy just about anything but happiness. Again, 13, 5, and 6, for he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helpful helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What is this? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. This is a quote from the Psalter, the Psalms 118.6. So what is the fear that we are to avoid? Why is the writer to the Hebrews quoting again the Old Testament, specifically 118.6? So what is the fear that they need to avoid? It's the fear of man. They're fearful of man. He's saying, don't be fearful of man. Don't be fearful of man. You see, the writer to the Hebrews, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knows that believers, Christians, they, he, he, he knows the ways that we often take, that we as a people have been prone to wander for years. <laughs> Somebody say amen. We're prone to worship the opinions of others instead of God. We're prone to do a lot of things. He knows this. Sometimes we base our decisions on fear. Decisions go through our grid, however it is we make a decision. You may not think about it, but how many decisions do we make because of fear? Do we ever speak up for God's design for marriage, or, or are we too fearful uh, to do that? Do we pray about simple things like, you know, how am I going to spend the stimulus check? I keep hearing about how some people who are, are extremely conservative and praise God for you say, I don't even need the stimulus check. I can't believe they keep sending it to me. Well, listen, if you don't want it, we'll take it. I know what to do with it. I've got a mission and a mission statement. But maybe rather than just give it to the church, Maybe you're to pray about it and say, God, what would you have me do with this? I don't need it. And some are saying, man, that's an answer to prayer. I actually did need it. So we're all in different categories. However, it's, this is the point. When it comes in, when resources come in, when the resources that you have on a monthly basis, they're, they're just there, it's your home, it's your car, they are meant to bring God glory. They are meant for you to be stewards of those things. So how many decisions have you, this month, coming into the month, how many decisions have you made based out of fear or the thought of loss of some kind this month? You see, the writer is dealing with a church, a church, who've paid a heavy cost for their faith. That's what's on display here. They've paid a heavy price. 
Many have lost status. Families turned on them, and of course, their possessions. The writer to the Hebrews does have a point. Yes, in this world, you are going to lose things. But there's something that you cannot ever lose, and that's the inheritance that's been promised to you. That is your salvation. So he's saying, don't drift, but persevere. Faith is the antagonist to fear. Because faith grasps the fact that there is a divine promise. That we believe that divine promise. But you know, I was thinking about these verses that I read to you, and I found them to be a bit somber in some places. Because there was a lot of judgment. Because God said, I will judge harshly those who are in those categories. Immorality sexual sin, and such. But I read my Bible, and I realize something, and you may have as well, that in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, it says, and that was some of you. In other words, you were the adulterer. You were the one that was stuck in sexual sin. You were the one that was stuck in some sin that was going to prevent you from going into glory. And that was some of you. That was, that was, that was some of you. <laughs> but you, you were washed. <laughs> but you, you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, God is saying for those who repent of their sins, he will take that sin, that filth, all of those things that are unspeakable, even my friend who had an affair. When he went to his Father in heaven and said, Father, I repent. Forgive me. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against my family. Sinned against my wife. God forgave him. There was a consequence. But God, by his grace, has warned us and says, I will forgive you. Come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are tired, and I will give you a drink. I will give you rest. That, brothers and sisters, is the glorious gospel that no matter what we've done, no matter what we've stepped in, no matter if what we've done is atrocious for those who repent and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he will redeem. And that is the God that we serve in this house.